Hi, everybody. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. The waning hours of December 5th, 2022, already into the 12th day of Kislev, 2783. And if I sound a little hoarse, it's because I've been talking all day. Um, the first full day of a One Israel Fund mission with an itinerary that's a little bit different than most people have when they come to Israel as tourists. It's mainly focused on Judea and Samaria. We're also spending a couple of days here in the South since um, part of what One Israel Fund does is also help the people in Western, the Western Negev around Gaza. So that's where we were today. Um, despite the fact that there were uh, some missiles that were shot a couple of days ago, and there was a chance that we weren't going to go today. It was quiet yesterday. And so we went staying in stable care. Uh, tomorrow, actually, we're going to be touring Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel. So we're staying right in the hotel right next door to his, what they call his hut, his sleep, where he lived in the last years of his life. And it's a really important exhibit, um, very important exhibit. And it talks about leadership and his vision for the Negev. And... Um, Ben-Gurion was a tremendous leader. Of course, I, I don't agree with everything that he did. I don't agree with anything, everything that anybody does. But he was really a very important leader with a lot of guts at a very important time and uh, declared the state, which is almost 75 years old. So even though this is a trip that's focused uh, on Judea and Samaria and in areas that were not uh, within the small and newly established state of Israel in 48. They don't liberate these areas until 1967. And after Ben-Gurion is uh, no longer leading the country, um, there is, I think, a lot of significance to visiting where he lived, to seeing his vision, to understanding who he was. And just the general talk about leadership and the Negev, which is an incredibly important part of Israel. Uh, the landmass, the desert landmass, that's the entire south of the country. And the fact that it's also now being taken over by the Bedouin, we talked about that last week. Those of you who heard my interview with Nomi Linder Khan of Regavim and what's happening all over here. So it's been a very intense couple of days. And today we started off at Kerem Shalom. Kerem Shalom is the community right at the corner of Gaza, the Negev, and Sinai, which is of course controlled by Egypt since the early 1980s as part of our peace treaty with Egypt. Um, the people who are living there are really amazing. It is a former kibbutz that fell apart a couple of times economically, socially, very far from everywhere, very difficult to make a living there. And now it has in the last few years revived itself to a great degree because they made a decision. It was a totally secular kibbutz. It was actually started by Hashomer Hatzair, which is a very, very left-wing, very secular uh, organization. Um, they decided to bring in religious families to live together, um, religious and not so. You all know how much I hate the terminology. Um, and, uh, and it's full. <laughs> There's not a house to be found. And um, it's really an incredible place. And we spoke to the woman. I've met her and known her for many, many years. She lives there. She's raised her family there. She spoke very openly about the difficulty of living there, about the seven seconds, seven seconds warning that they have um, when there's some kind of incoming mortar missile or something like that. And um, how the toll that it takes on them. And someone asked her, so why do you live here? And she just looked at them, said, looked at them and said, because somebody has to. And uh, really to just be in awe of who looks like a, you know, just a simple regular woman who's got 
this tremendous man, tremendous resilience and strength. She's also the head of the their emergency services, which means that she's very busy all the time. And she explained to us how people are let people how they let people know what's happening and where people are. And then we toured the, the tremendous wall. I don't know, it must be like 10 meters high that surrounds them. And they have a little window now. They have a little platform with a little window where you can look through and you can see the Kerem Shalom crossing, the crossing from Israel into Gaza that were hundreds of trucks a day bring all kinds of goods and medication and cement and energy and electricity into the Gaza Strip, um, which you could say is idiotic. And you can also say how lovely that is that we're trying to find that like that middle ground between helping people who need humanitarian aid and not aiding and abetting the terrorism. We can have that discussion another time. That's a long discussion. I obviously have an opinion on that, but that's not for today. And uh, so we toured around there um, and then we went to the Steel Tower, which is the memorial to the soldiers that fell in Sinai in the Six Day War. It used to be in Yanit, one of the people in the group, the last time she saw it was actually in the Sinai. She didn't even know it had been brought into Israel. They were afraid of it being desecrated after we left Sinai. And we climbed to the top, uh, 25 meters. You can see around the whole area. You can see how green the area is, an area that even Arafat refused to accept because it was so desolate. Nothing grew there in the Chalutza sand dunes and that salient. And now it's green and there's hot houses and it's unbelievable of the mix of populations there between people who had to leave Sinai 40 years ago, the people who had to leave Gaza 17 years ago, and other Israelis who have joined them, uh, really the pioneering spirit and, and settling an area that is not so simple to live in. It's an hour from the closest hospital, not so easy to find employment in the area. Uh, and so that was like really like a tremendous view. Um, and then we went to, we did a bus tour of the communities that are there, the newer communities, Naven, Shlomit, and the hot houses around there, just meters from, from the border with Sinai. Today was quiet. I've been down there in other times where you could hear the helicopter gunships going after ISIS in the Sinai. Um, today, not. There's a wall that has been put there to prevent people who are trying to sneak into Israel from Africa from coming in. Um, so we saw that as well. We saw the balloons, the like the dirigible balloons with the cameras in them that dot the skyline where the girls, the Tatspatinyot of the army uh, watch, you know, they look through those, they get on the screens with those cameras or broadcasting so they can see into enemy territory and make sure that nobody's planning any kind of infiltration or anything else. Or if a rocket is fired, they can track already what's going on and call in the army. Um, Tremendously difficult job, tremendously tense. One of my daughters did it. Not easy at all. Uh, and then we went and had a really yummy lunch at this place, if you're ever in that area, called Chocolate Cafe. People are delightful. The owners are delightful. Simple sandwiches, salads, chocolate, um, and good bathrooms, which is always important. And that was really, um, that was really a nice little stop. And then we went and met with the head of security for the Eshkol region, the area around Gaza is four different areas and the Eshkol region is the largest one. It's 40 kilometers by 20 kilometers. So he has in his area, many different kibbutzim and moshavim, a lot of people that he's taken care of. And he gave us a very in-depth assessment. We were standing on a, on a bluff overlook, right? Like just meters from the new wall that goes down 
very, very deep into the ground to prevent infiltrations through tunnels. We were looking right into Gaza. You could see the Hamas lookouts. I'm sure they saw us. Um, and, you know, he said it's quiet now for a variety of reasons. The Hamas doesn't want an escalation. Islamic Jihad, a little more difficult to pin down. They, they don't, as irrational as you might think Hamas is, there actually is a rationality to what they're doing. They want to destroy Israel, and there's a, they, they have a plan. Islamic Jihad is a little bit more of a wild weed, and they're also kind of leaderless right now because Israel was able to take out a couple of their key leaders in the last few months. So that's made them also a bit less controllable. Um, but also not as uh, able to shoot things and do some of the things that they wanted to do. So they we explained the interesting balance, the forces of power within the Gaza Strip and what's happening in his region around. And that was really fascinating to hear him. I've heard him before. He's a great guy. Um, doesn't sleep much, never goes away because he can't, because he feels like he's got this tremendous responsibility and he's really the liaison between the army and the civilians who are there because you have a border, but a lot of people living within a range of, you know, of some really bad activity and the balance between, um, between that, like, for an example, he told about um, like an army vehicle that had to get somewhere. And of course the treads on these army vehicles can rip up everything. So he showed them how to go. So as not to rip up the agricultural fields, so as not to rip up the piping, you know, that brings water to the agricultural fields and to do what they have to do to secure the area while not harming the life of the farmers and the civilians as much as possible. And it's incredibly important, obviously, when there's like an out-out war, you know, all rules go out the window and you just do what you have to do. And that has happened when we've had these major wars where the fields just got like totally destroyed because the tanks were there and the army was there. And you just had to get to where you need to go as quickly as possible. But during regular days, which are most of them, the vast majority of them, there is that balance and that sensitivity between the army and that relationship between the army and the civilians that are there. And it's a very, very delicate balance. Some similarities with Judea and Samaria, uh, in this case, not as much because um, we don't have a, the tremendous agriculture in Judea and Samaria as they have here. And also um, the enemies in Judea and Samaria are like literally right next door and across the street and with us. And while we don't have that kind of a designated border. So, um, but they also have, it's tremendously ramped up the dangers that come from there, the missiles and the rockets, et cetera. So it's like a day by day, minute to minute thing. And um, so that was really fascinating. And then to wrap up the day, we went to afternoon prayers at the ancient synagogue that was found there, Ma'on Nirim, uh, from the Byzantine period, from the period between the fourth and seventh century, between the Romans and the Muslims, when Christians ruled the land. And the Jews were here, there were always Jews here, uh, living under the Christians. And in this particular area, it was a very Christian area, but you had some Jews living here and finding, we knew about that. And finding the synagogue though was further proof um, that there was Jewish life in the western part of the Negev during that period. Um, and it's a mosaic of a synagogue floor. It faces Jerusalem. It has the symbols that we're familiar with, the Jewish symbols that we're familiar with, the menorah, the seven-branched candelabra from the temple, a lulav and a tog, uh, and, other, and other things, the lack of graven images, etc. 
um, they chose. And so they, they prayed the afternoon prayers. They're facing Jerusalem in the same place the Jews prayed a long, long time ago. Uh, and that connection is just so important uh, for those who say that we were never here and we usurped somebody's place and all of that. It's just a further proof of some of the lies we're trying to combat. And that's really what I'm trying to do in this next week is to show them things, to expose them to the reality here. And it's difficult and I'm not hiding anything and uh, things that you're not going to read about in the newspaper that is going to be twisted in many degrees or taken out of context if it is so that they can see for themselves. And I, I know already, and I told them, it's not going to be an easy trip. It's out of the comfort zone, both physically and emotionally and spiritually and intellectually in every single way um, to really see what's behind the headlines, meet people who live in these areas and not just security people, but the farmers and the simple people and the teachers, why people live here, what exactly is going on? Where does this all fit in to the current Israeli politics? Where does this fit into global politics? Why the obsession with Israel? Is it overblown? Is it maybe even not as big as it should be because it's even more important in some ways than we think? And the answer to that is yes and yes. Sometimes it's overblown and sometimes it's not spoken about enough. And the tremendous role that Israel is playing um, is one of the good guys in a world that seems to be fast spinning out of control and the challenges that we have here uh, and what we're doing in order to deal with them and to think about the future, but not get up in the morning and worry and be scared. Like somebody said, at one point, we're standing like meters, you know, from the Gaza border. And he said, but none of us are scared right now. I said, right, none of you are scared right now. And if you'd overthought it, right? If so, or you guys are listening, are like, oh my God, why were you guys like so scared Look where you were at such a hot spot? But when you're there, you're there. And the vast majority of the time, it's really paradise and beautiful communities. And when it's not, it's not. And when it's not, you don't get like a warning really either. But that's not a reason to not go, at least not in my mind, and not in the mind of the group that I was with today. And to really begin to understand how much we don't understand, you have to go and you have to feel the place. You have to talk to the people. You have to see the place. It, like someone said to me, well, why don't, you know, like this woman from Karim Shalom, like why isn't she brought to the States and to speak and to explain about what it's like to live there? And it's just not the same. I mean, I've seen that happen and I do that myself uh, and go and try and explain, but it's so, it's so different when you're there and you're looking around and she's in her home and you see, you know, what she's up against, but also why she lives there and the beauty of the place and the importance of the place. And then once again, I think to myself for the gazillion of time, how surrounded by incredible people I am and just, um, just a, a story that uh, that I want to share. We, um, my husband and I, paid a condolence call to people that we've known for a long time, who who lost uh, a son to cancer in his thirties, uh, like you know, really a terrible tragedy. Married with little children, and he was very active in the army and in his reserve duty, and very close to all his fellow soldiers. And while we were there, uh, some of the soldiers, including his commander, were there also paying condolence call. And as the commander was about to leave and he leaned down to give the father a hug, and of course, and expresses really tremendous grief at the loss, the father, we heard the father say to him, 
Thank you for bringing him home safely from the wars so that we could have him for a few more years. And I thought to myself, because you guys have heard me rant about entitlement, I thought to myself, wow, this is like the antithesis of entitlement. This is a grieving father who will grieve until his last breath for his son, who is, I guess, saying, you know, like we weren't meant to have him, but thanking, thanking the commander for bringing him back safely for the war. So at least they had him for a little longer because it wasn't entitled to have him for a long time. And I just stood there, of course, tears rolling down my face as with anybody who was standing and heard this conversation and just thought, where did, you know, how does, how does someone do that? Where does that come from? That is in such a raw place. You know, there's an expression in Hebrew that you know somebody's true, um, true personality in three situations, and it alliterates really nicely. In Hebrew, how he behaves with money, how he behaves when he's drunk, and how he behaves when he's angry. And I've thought for a long time, and maybe it's because it doesn't alliterate that they didn't put it in here. Also, when someone is in deep grief and not in control of their emotions and could be forgiven for anything that they say. And then you really see the, the, the real who the person really is. And I just heard this and I was just once again, so awed by the greatness of some of the people who I'm privileged to live with. And as I said to somebody afterwards, you know, you talk about moving to Israel and you talk about the land and the holiness of the land and making Aliyah. And I've, I know I've said this before, but what they don't tell you is about the people. And sometimes you even hear disparaging marks about Israelis. Oh, Israelis, and they're pushy, and they drive terribly, and then, and, and, and I'm sure you've all heard them, and some of you have probably made them. And all that is true. All that is true. It's very Middle Eastern. It can be very rude and pushy. But the greatness, I don't even have the words for it. And uh, so that was my week. Once again, all over the place, uh, emotionally. My pendulum swings are really, really wide. So that's for tonight. Just wanted to share. I'm super tired. Have to get up early tomorrow. We're going uh, towards Jerusalem through the Hebron Hills. Uh, and we'll be stopping at one of the communities there where we donated a child learning center because uh, we want to keep the kids off the road and not driving too far if they need extra care and extra learning help. So we'll build something nearby the communities there. Then to Hebron, to Susia, one of the, an ancient village from 1800 years ago, an ancient Jewish village, and uh, to Hebron and then to Jerusalem. And from there, the rest of Judea and Samaria, Jordan Valley, Gush Etzion, the area around Shechem, Benjamin. Uh, I don't know what this next week will bring and hopefully we'll conclude it safely. And uh, I can plan, but most, a lot of the things are just really out of my control. So um, I hope it'll be an incredible week for me, for all of you, wherever you are, a meaningful week. And, um, and I hope to be back next week on Rejuvenation for the Land of Israel Network. And thanks to Tabitha and to Ben and uh, Eve Harrow. Uh, and thank you all really so much for listening. And thanks for your feedback also. Love getting letters from you guys um, that you listen to the show, even if it's months later, I don't care. Um, and that you learned something from it, something upset you, something inspired you, whatever it is. 
Um, that's what we do here, and that's what we try and do from really the heart of the heartland. So uh, take care, everybody, and I hope wherever you are that you're well and appreciative of what you have. Eve Harrow, take care of you, and goodbye for now. Hey, everybody, you're listening to the Land of Israel Network. Check out my show, The Ishai Fleischer Show, with Torah, politics, insights, and spirituality, and the face of Moses, the light that shines from him, is shining onto you. Shine it back to us here in the Land of Israel Network. Can't wait to see you on the Ishai Fleischer Show.